listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So we are in chapter 11. We're going to finish up that chapter today because... Uh, it is at the end of this massive theological section in the book of Romans. And if you've been here for probably the last three or four weeks, you know we've talked about some very challenging things, some things we didn't want to think about, some things that were hard to understand. And so today, Paul is going to close up that section. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 12 uh, in how we then live the Christian life. But here's what we'll see today. Only a God as big and as wise as our God could take the fall of Israel and turn it into salvation for the world. And I would add, including Israel. This morning, have you had, maybe even recently, some of those aha moments? You know those moments where something happens or you hear something and you just come into a sudden realization or an insight, or uh, more comprehension of something. And so I've been thinking back over this last week, and I remember the moment, I had an aha moment, I remember the moment that I realized something. I remember realizing that a BB gun, a Red Rider BB gun, could shatter a window of a church van. I remember, I didn't know that. And then all of a sudden, I knew that. And then I ran and hide for a few hours until my dad found me. So one of those aha moments, or the more serious ones, I can remember one time, uh, if you don't know this, you cannot take a hard deer horn and cut it with a miter saw. If you try that, you'll end up with about three or four pins in your hand. I just remember, I thought I had a good idea, and there came a moment with a lot of pain. Aha, you can't do that. More realization. Or you have kids. I remember... Kylie was a little bitty, and Marla went to the store or something, and all of a sudden she started crying about something and uh, realized, oh, wait, this is all on me now. Mom's not there to help me kind of figure this out. Or those life-altering ones. I remember the moment. Marla and I were having a discussion, and uh, I wisely said, you're acting just like your mother. And I remember something in my spirit told me that's not something you should ever, ever say again if you want to keep breathing. And so we have these moments. There are these aha moments. And so over the last 12 verses in Romans 11 is this massive aha moment for Paul. Because Paul, he is this Jew of Jews, an Israelite. He was trained in the ways and the training of a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. Probably had uh, all of it memorized. He knew God's Word. And as the New Testament is being written and formed, he's writing a lot of it. And today you're going to see a moment. Paul is going to kind of pull back the veil and show you the moment that for Paul, everything clicked. And the pieces of the puzzle finally fit together for Paul. And how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And all of a sudden there was this complete aha moment where Paul came into a realization he had never seen before. And we're going to see Paul's aha moment beginning in verse 25. And it begins in God's timing. 
This is how it reads. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And this is the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So notice Paul's doing something. He is fighting for something here. He's fighting for their humility. He does not want them, and it says, to be wise in their own sight. He's fighting for their humility. But humility is one of these things. I once heard it said, humility, as soon as you think you have it, you've lost it. And so here he is. He is fighting for their humility. He doesn't want them to be wise in their own sight. Then he tells them a mystery. It's not something new. It's just something that has been hidden. And all of a sudden now, he sees it. And this mystery is the partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But notice the hardening. It's not full and it's not final. But when Israel as a whole rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God focused his attention on another group. He focused it on the Gentiles. But God began with the Jewish nation. He called them his chosen people. They were then to be his representatives in all the earth. But because of the rejection of him, God brings the Gentiles who believe, who trust in Jesus into the community of faith in the church age begins back in Acts 2. But notice, God is not fully turning his back on Israel. God, he is working his plan of redemption. He tells when the fullness of the Gentiles, when that is reached, when all those that have been appointed to eternal life believe, something is going to happen. So what or when is, what is he referring to? You'll see it in verse, beginning in verse 26. God's going to make a promise. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he's going to do something. He's going to banish all ungodliness, and look from who? Jacob, or Israel. What Paul's doing, he's quoting, if you've got cross-references, he's quoting Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, because long ago... Isaiah prophesied about a deliverer that was going to come and he would come to Zion. He's going to banish all ungodliness. And what we need to understand that Paul is referring, when is he referring to? He's referring to the second coming of Jesus. The first time Jesus came as the Messiah, lived the life, died on the cross, but he was rejected. Now, not by every Jew, but most. But there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return. Not to lay down his life again, but he will come to deliver and to rule. He will return and he will reign from Jerusalem. And Revelation tells us for a thousand years. And during this time, Jesus is going to banish all ungodliness from the land, from Jacob or Israel. And what you'll see unfold in just a moment is that partial hardening will be removed And Israel will believe. But you've got to go, God, why would you do this? To a people that time after time reject over and over and over again. You've given them every privilege, every advantage. Why do you continue to do this? 
And it has to do with his covenants. Look at verse 27. He's going to quote Isaiah 27 that's going to then reference Jeremiah 21. And it says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In fact, it's written in Jeremiah 31. And listen to how it reads. He's going to tell us about that covenant. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel or Jacob. After those days, declares the Lord. Well, after what days? I believe it's the days of the church. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus will come and he will claim the throne of Israel. And he will establish a nation that will be fully obedient to him. And at that time, Israel will finally receive all the covenant blessings they've been promised, including their land. And at that time, Israel will finally have their perfect, righteous, obedient king that they've been looking for. In fact, Israel will become the earthly means once again for God's righteousness to rule on the face of the earth. In fact, it's just exactly like God intended from the beginning. Because He's promised He's going to fix this. But why would he do this? He continues. It's not just his promises. It's not just his covenant. It has to do with God himself. Look at verse 28. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And this is what we've seen over the last two weeks. Israel's rejection of Jesus was good news for the Gentiles. But because of the rejection, they become enemies of the gospel and enemies of God. But God is working something, not just in Israel. He is working something in the entire world. So God turns his affection to the Gentiles. And you remember in hopes of what? To make Israel jealous. In fact, he goes on. He's not forgetting his people Israel. He says, but as regards to election, you need to know they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Says, I made them a promise. I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one day I will remove the partial hardening of their hearts. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but for the gifts, meaning God's blessings, and the calling of God in reference to salvation, they're irrevocable. But that word, it means without regret. Meaning all that God has done for Israel and all that they have in turn done to him, God has never regretted sending his son or working his redemptive plan. He's not once regretted it. But notice this in verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So the Gentiles were disobedient. In fact, they refused to believe. And this has always been because God did not reveal himself to them initially. But God did reveal himself to them when Israel refused to believe and were disobedient. 
So God chose to show mercy to the Gentiles. But then in verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. I Meaning God is not done and he has not fully rejected Israel. He has a plan to show them mercy at the second coming. In fact, we must remember that God chose Israel so that the Gentiles could be saved. Israel was supposed to represent God on earth, but they didn't. The tragedy was that Israel, they became exclusive. They failed to share the truth of their God to their Gentile neighbors. They thought that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to be saved. So God did something. Through a gracious act of tough love, He said to the Jews, in effect, that's enough. You have rejected the Messiah, even though I have warned you time and time again, and I am going to turn to the Gentiles. But it's only a temporary setback. And I have been waiting all week long to show you what's next. I had one of those moments, this aha moment where where God took the scriptures and all of a sudden they fit together and I saw connections that I've never seen before. And I'm going to kind of have to bounce around a few places so you're going to have to write quick for time's sake. But here's where it begins. Go to the familiar place in John 12 of Lazarus. I've never seen this until this week. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And then what happens is they seek to kill Jesus and then they seek to kill Lazarus. So Jesus stops and prays. The crowd around him, they hear thunder. And Jesus then talks about his death and his resurrection. But the Jews reply, they said, how can the Son of Man be lifted up? How can he die? Because we have studied the law and we know that Christ remains forever. And they're trying to connect the dots. Well, Then look at verse 20, 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And you see God's plan, what he had designed? But then it says, When Jesus said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Jesus is telling them the light is right in front of you. But that light is not going to be around forever. Now is the time to believe. But then what happens? He tells them that light is about to go out for you. And what happens is Jesus departs and he hides himself. But then notice the next scene. Another familiar one. It's in Luke 13. Jesus is teaching in these villages along the way. He's headed all the way to Jerusalem. And somebody stops and they ask him. They say, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus, he's going to draw them a a word picture of a door. Jesus shows them this picture of people trying to get in. And he will not let them go through. So they're going to say, but Jesus, we, we ate and we drank with you in your presence. And you taught us in the streets. And Jesus is going to say to those, Depart from me, and there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. And notice who they see. I believe Jesus is referring to the Jews, 
or trying to get in and notice who they see. Their fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But notice what Jesus says in Luke 13, 29 and 30. And the people came from the east and the west, from the north and the south, talking about the Gentiles. And what are they doing? They're reclining at the table in the kingdom of God. He's talking about the church. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Because the Jews thought they, because they were descendants in Israel, they thought they would be welcomed in, but they were not. But it was Gentiles that came from all over. But because they believed, they find themselves at the table. In fact, they looked at the Gentiles. They thought they were lesser because they were Gentiles. But because of their belief, they were at the table. But God isn't finished with Israel. So I want to show you. In fact, I could go to so many passages in the Old Testament, so I had to pick just one. So I picked Zechariah 12. In verses 10 and 11, looking ahead to this time with Israel... Notice what it says. He says it makes a promise. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. It's after his resurrection. I believe it's pointing to his second coming. And notice what they will do this time. They are going to mourn. As mourn as one does only for a child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over their firstborn. And then just a few verses later at the beginning of 13, notice the picture. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened on the house of David and his inhabitants of Jerusalem. And notice the promise to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness, just as God had promised. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I'll also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So I want to now show you how God reassures us that this is happening. And you go back to the New Testament in Matthew 23. He tells them, for I tell you, Speaking to the Jews, you will not see me again. But when you do, this is what you will say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Israel sees Jesus again, the blindness will be lifted from their eyes and they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 14, God's going to do something. And this gospel of the kingdom will now be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations about who? About Israel. And then the end will come. So what was Israel supposed to be? God's representatives on earth to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But they failed. They rejected him. So God turns his attention to the Gentiles, creates his church, but Jesus is coming back to call his bride home at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But God is not done. The Jews will turn and they will believe. They will cleanse the world of ungodliness and uncleanliness. And the world will, they will testify to the world 
about God's faithfulness. And this is Paul's aha moment. He sees the Old Testament and the New Testament come together and he realizes what God is doing. Meaning when the church age is over, everything promised will come to pass. Israel in mass will have their eyes open to receive Jesus as the Messiah. And this is what the prophets were always looking forward to. And Paul says, only a God as wise as my God could take the fall of Israel, my people, and turn it into salvation of the world. And what you've just witnessed is the end of Paul's theological section. And it is deep, and it can be confusing at times, and it is challenging, and that's the end of it. That is where he ends his theological section. But notice, there's about four verses left. So I want to ask you, why do you come and sit here every week? Why do you attend a Bible study with other men? Or why do you go to a life group? Why, why do you open up your daily devotional and read through? Why do you take that app and, and do some Bible reading? Why do we do all of those things? Is it just to know more about God? Is it just to gain more knowledge? It's just to try to know more than the people around us. I want you to hear me, church. If that is the case, we are doing it wrong. This is how we know we're doing theology right. This is how we know we're doing church right. This is how we know when we're around God's word, we're doing it right. When Paul thinks about what God has done, and he has spent 11 chapters on it, and what God is doing, and he thinks about what will one day come to pass, when he just ended this massive, they believe in some cases, the biggest theological section in all the scripture. Do you know what he does? He breaks out in awe and worship. Our study of God, our, our theology should always lead us to worship. It should lead us to humility. Just like Paul was after. So let me read for us. Paul gets takes his pen, he gets through this section. I believe he is tired, his mind is worn out. But then from his heart he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable or how incomprehensible are his ways. For who is known or who can know the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When Paul thinks about what God is doing, he almost can't stand. Because he realized that God is doing something that is so much bigger than just Paul. He finally sees the God of the Bible is far bigger than him. And far bigger than we could ever imagine. So with Paul. We don't need to worry that we do not understand everything that God is doing. Or about him or about his plan. We may not understand everything about Him, but we are able to marvel at Him 
and stand in awe. Because only a God as wise as our God can take the fall of Israel and turn it into salvation for the world. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.